Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Before we dive in, I'd like to thank our listeners, especially the ones who have left us reviews. This one comes from Sober Vibes. Amazing. Having lost a friend to cancer, I'm so happy this podcast is here to listen and learn from. Thank you. Well, Sober Vibes, I'm so sorry for your loss. We all are. And we really appreciate your five-star review. Melissa Melanthi does not want others to learn the hard way as she and her family did during her mom's eight-month battle with ovarian cancer. Melissa is passionate about patient advocacy and helping others find their voice in a complex and increasingly dangerous healthcare system. And we're going to do a deep dive about what she means when she says dangerous. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your and your mom's story. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So, Melissa, can you take us back to the beginning with your mother? Did she have symptoms? Did she have any prior existing health conditions? No, believe it or not, my mom uh, was waiting tables the night before Um, she went to the emergency room. She was diagnosed at 68 and did not make her 69th birthday. Um, She wasn't a doctor person. Um, You know, I I have to believe she had symptoms. In fact, I know she had symptoms prior, but she didn't say anything. Um, I was kind of mad at myself for not seeing them because she was losing weight. Um, She was distended when we finally went to the emergency room, Um, but she wore extra large shirts, so we didn't see. Um, She never went to a gynecologist since she had me and I was 40. So when she was diagnosed, so that's 40 years of not going. No. She she had not been to the gynecologist in four decades? Nope. To make a long story short, she called me. She said she had stomach pain. I was playing doctor. I said, oh, Ma, it's probably um, some kind of um, bowel obstruction, you know, quick in and out kind of thing. So we went to the emergency room. And she had just watched uh, Dr. Oz had a special on ovarian and she kind of self-diagnosed and she's like, I know it's bad. I know it's bad. And, and then when she was laying in the ER, um, you know, she got the gown on and I noticed her stomach was distended. Like she was five months pregnant. I was like, where did that come from? And um, of course the uh, physician asked for, um, um, a CAT scan with contrast and God, she hated drinking that contrast, but, um, you know, Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. (laughs) And, and when, and she, when she finally drank it and, you know, now I know in hindsight, um, why it took so long because she was obstructed, you know? Um, and, um, the, the physician came out, came back and had the results and my dad had showed up and he, he wanted to talk to them privately. Now, while he said he thought it was benign, um, his face and his nonverbal communication said otherwise, especially asking to speak to my 
mom and dad privately. Um, and then once, uh, you know, once he came into the room, she, they found she had a 23 centimeter mass on her ovary, which is big. So oh that gosh. started with, okay, now we need to, um, you know, get to the, her GP, which is an old school doctor. I actually had a cell phone number. It was a Saturday. I called him on his cell phone. You know, he's great guy, old school, takes a cell phone, which no doctor would talk to you today. Right. Um, and he's like, oh, you know, Missy, maybe it's benign. You know, you don't know. She's otherwise healthy, that kind of thing. And, you know, but when we did everything as a family. So my family unit was me, my sister, my father, and my son at the time, who was only 15 months. Um, and uh, so oh. we, we had a baby carriage in tow the whole time. And we went to the <laughs> our GP and, you know, he was like trying to stay hopeful. And, you know, with this, you know, this could be the benign thing. And, but at the same time, when he um, palpitated her stomach, like, I could see his face. And then, you know, we left with the dreaded um, oncology and gynecology oncology consults, which we didn't want. So if it's benign, why are we getting these consults? So, you know, that kind of started the process. And um, we found out very quickly that, um, you know, you're not special when you, when you have this diagnosis, right? Even though it's your loved one, you, you want to race and get in the front of the line of everybody to see these doctors. But, you know, we had to, and this is going back 10 years, it's worse today. We had to really press to get her seen and, and seen quickly. Um, so that, that was the first, one of the first learning experiences. And, um, you know, to deviate a little bit, I, I read a lot about your cancer, you and Dr. Google and, my God, I did nothing but talk to Dr. Google till all hours of the night for months, you know, just anything to try and figure out ways to, you know, will this work? Will that work? Alternative care, you know, you name it. I tried it. So I, I really appreciate your efforts in trying to put everything into one area. And I could tell you a story during her care of why it was so important. And it's just an unbelievable story of what, something that happened during our care that I actually Googled and was right on. And it was pretty bad. <laughs> Tell us. My mom had, um, she was supposed to get the surgery, right? We wanted to get it out right away. Um, but because she hadn't been to a doctor, it, you know, she needed to go through all the pre-op testing. So pre-op sure, testing was a colonoscopy, a mammogram, um, uh, uh, you name it. Every, every test that she should have had in the last 40 years, she had to have right away. Um, we were scheduled for surgery and we we're like, let's get this stuff out. And um, she wound up, as you know, uh, her platelets, her, she did the pre-op blood, her platelets are supposed to be between 250 and 400. She was 1.2 million. So she was a big stroke risk. So, you know, when we came in, she was a six o'clock case and there were three doctors in her room and my mom was crying and they canceled the case because the, the, doc, the doctors were afraid because of the stroke risk. So she had to go through a machine that's, that's like, um, you know, dialysis that, that cleans out the platelets and gets you to the right level. Right. And then, you know, we got on the schedule again and then again, they, they were not comfortable. So they decided to do, um, you know, the, the three to four months of chemo and then debulk to quote unquote shrink the cancer as we went. 
So they did not do that surgery right away no. because of the no and and what risk of stroke. What was wow. what was worse was that um, the, when they canceled surgery the second time, you know they were they were looking at her diagnosis was based on um, clinical signs, blood, you know that kind of thing. But they had not got a biopsy at that time yet. So the, the gynecologist oncologist ordered the biopsy, um, and you know, it came back with adenocarcinoma. However, it was supposed to be 24 hours. It was four days later. So me and my sister, my mom are sitting in her room and, um, a nurse comes in the room and she's got like what we would call like a COVID suit on now. Right. And, <laughs> and she comes in and, and she's like, okay, Miss Burns are ready to start your chemo. And we're like, what, what chemo? We'd have no diagnosis. We, oh, for your cancer. I didn't know we were positive, you know? I mean, we, we had no diagnosis. Yeah. So I called her oncologist and went like, that was a whole nother story. Um, we had, we had no staging. We had no, what if, so she wound up having three C, which is, you know, one step before four, as you know. Um, and so my sister's like, why do you have that, those clothes on, you know, all that, that gear. And she's like, well, because it's poison and I can't get it on me. And can I have your vein? <laughs> We're like, what? You know, and so she did the the chemo and and then after the second round, um, she started wasting, uh, uh, you know, which is common. And um, we said, you know what? This doesn't look very good. We want to get a CAT scan to make sure this is having an impact. And they did the CAT scan um, before we did the third round of chemo. And the oncologist told us that um, the tumor had shrunk in half. So we're like, doing the jig. We're like, Oh my God, this is amazing. You know? So my mom, as sick as she was with the effects of the chemotherapy, got the third round. Following week, she goes to see the gynecologist oncologist, which in the book, I I don't name the doctors, but I call her, um, Dr. Z. Um, she was the one that, uh, my sister and I always thought we would, we would make a joke, like call her the grim reaper because she always seemed to have bad news, but whatever, her pytho- hypothesis was throughout the entire time she was on point. She was correct. She was truthful. She may not have always told us what we wanted to hear, but she was always right. And and now looking back, I thank her for that. So yeah. after my mom had the third round, after being told it shrunk in half, she looked at the films with the radiologist and said, it didn't shrink at all. In fact, it grew. The chemo hasn't touched it. And we had just given her a third round of chemo. So we put more poison in an already sick woman. Um, so that- So who told you it shrunk? The oncologist PA. So it was a large group and it, it was just it was just bad. So then my mom's crying in, in the oncologist, gynecologist's office. And we're like, okay, we need to get this out. And she's wasting. I mean, she's wasting- Every, like, you know, one of the things I say in the book as well is like, you know, little things that you don't think about, like keeping the weight every time you go to a doctor's appointment, you know, that's so important because she started at like 147 at this point, she was about 123 and it was only a couple months. Um, and her protein levels were very low, which is very dangerous. So we were trying to get on the surgery um, schedule. And this was in the end of July and they were talking about October. And I said, October, she will not be here in October. And with that, 
you know, this is where my sister and I were like yin and yang. Like she sat with my mom. She was upset. My father in the, in the room, me, I, you know, Scorpio, Sicilian, I don't know what you want to call it, but we're all the doctors that were the secretaries that were making the appointments for the different disciplines were sitting in a room together because with this surgery, because you could have a bowel perforation, they needed to have a colon doctor in the room as well. So it was a scheduling sure. issue. And I'm like, I don't care what it is. She cannot wait till October. And so I took a chair out of the waiting room. I went into the scheduling room and I sat down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I love they you. Said, oh my they God. They said, I'm sorry, you can't be there. And I'm saying, I'm sorry, but I'm not leaving until you find a way to get my mom on the schedule. And they're like, well, Good you can't you. be there. I said, we'll call security, do what you got to do. Cause my mom won't be alive in October. And the, again, Dr. Z in the book, you know, now, she, you know, she's pacing up and down the, the hallway on her cell phone, trying to do her own thing. And they finally mm -hmm. were able to get her scheduled August 4th. So, you know, this is where it's like, you just can't take no for an answer. Um, That's right. She um, basically the night before uh, Dr. Z pulled me aside, she pulled me out of the room and said, you know, Missy, I, I'm not, I don't really like your mom's case. Um, I'm thinking this might be palliative. And I'm like, oh God, you're telling me this. And she's on the, in the OR in six hours. But you know what, again, you don't want to hear it at the time, but basically she told me, and I'm sure other caregivers have heard the same thing. If they're going for a big debulking surgery and you see them in an hour, that means that they opened and closed because there's nothing they can do. If you, if there's t more time that goes by, there's better probability that they're being able to do what they want to do. And so nine hours went by. So we were like, holy cow, we lucked out. And um, they came out. Um, they said they got everything. She only had microscopic left. Um, she was in ICU. They intubated her, which I had never seen my mom intubated Um and seeing that, I mean, I walked into ICU and I just, I like fell into the seat and, um, that was a whole, I've never seen that before. Um, but we, you didn't get any warning that that might they, happen. They told us, but it's still a warning doesn't, if it's your loved one and seeing that it's just a, a whole nother, right. you know? And then the other thing was because she had it everywhere and so much debulking occurred, the, the body goes through, like they, they missed the organs. So all of a sudden my sister and I are sitting there and all these buzzers are going off and they had to actually flood her body with fluids because I didn't realize this. your body goes into like stress and trauma because of everything that they took out. So it was, that was a little traumatizing, um, you know, but, but for, for people who may not understand, can you explain what the word debulking means? Debulking means, you know, to, to be frank and kind of crude, it's like gutting. I mean, Please. gutting, I mean, they, yeah. they took out everything that they could possibly take out. She had it. Um, 3C means, you know, it's moved outside of what was the original ovary. It moved into, it was, she had stuff on her liver. She had stuff all the way up her diaphragm. Um, you know, all of the female parts. Um, it wasn't on her kidneys and believe it or not, it wasn't in her lymph nodes, which was strange considering how much she had. Um, That's unusual. Yeah. yeah. So she, you know, it was nine hours and, and they did it. And then she went into inpatient rehab, which was in the hospital. And, um, 
that was another thing, you know, again, patient advocacy, she called me up. I mean, we, me and my sister were there every day or my dad every day. We, if she was hospitalized, one of us was there. If it wasn't me after work, it was my sister during the day. Or it was my dad. Um, but she called me up and she's like, um, um, you know, they started me on a new pill. I really don't, I feel dizzy. And I'm like, ma, what, what pill is it? And she's like, it's a hypertensive med. And I'm like, my mom was always hypotensive. She had low blood pressure, 100 over 70. So to give her a hypertensive med for high blood pressure, that's going to bring it lower and then she's going to pass out. So I went to the hospital. This, is, this was just my everything. Just kind of run over there and I got to go talk to somebody. And I got the guy in charge of inpatient rehab. And I said, why did you put my mom on you know, hypertensive med? Mm-hmm. And basically he's white coat syndrome. I'm the doctor. She's a patient. I call the shots. So I'm like, mm, not a good answer. So got in my car. She was seeing a cardiologist cause she was tachycardic. So I went to the cardiologist's office and I'm like, I need to see Dr. So-and-so. And they're like, you don't have an appointment. I'm like, this is an emergency. I'll wait. And I sat in the waiting room and she finally came out. She's like, who are you? And I'm like, well, let me tell you, my mom's an inpatient. She just had a major surgery and one of your colleagues just put her on a hypertensive med. I told her not to take it. I need you to discontinue it. With that, she's like, you know, doctors don't like to talk about doctors, but I could see it in her face. She's like, why would he prescribe that? Yeah, why? You know, and basically when I left the hospital, I said to him, I said, if my mother falls from the time I get this discontinued until now, I said, you're 100% responsible. And he was just like, rah, rah, rah. And so she discontinued it. My mom finally got out of rehab, um, came home. And then they were going to do cleanup chemo. Uh, it was for what is that cleanup mean? chemo means whatever is left, the microscopic. And um, Ifosamide was the med they were going to use for that. It's it's common. And yeah, so I was at work. My sister sent me a text. My sister's very conservative as far as like cursing and stuff like that. But the text subject said effing terrible. My sister doesn't speak that way. So I I had a great job. Um, the executive vice president knew what I was going through. He said, go when you got to go. Nobody wants to be in your shoes. You know, they gave me total flexibility to come and go as I please, which was phenomenal. You you don't find bosses like that. And so I left Mm -hmm. and um, I Googled Dr. Google, the side effects of this particular med. And I took one look at my mom and she had every symptom of toxicity except coma and death. And I call, it was Labor Day weekend. I called uh, the oncologist and I know we had a boat and I knew he was going to be gone for the weekend. So I said, I need you to come here and look at my mom before you go because she was scheduled to have it over the weekend, one bag a day. And she wasn't looking good on day one. So he came over, told me to stay off the internet um, and (laughs) told me to stay off the internet. She was fine. For Connie, we were going for cure and, you know. Wait, had he seen her? He he did. He was in the room with us now. He's looking at her. He said she was fine. My mother opened one eye and and she trusted him. And he's like, he kind of, again, I think we fell to like white coat syndrome and like, I don't know why, but, but basically my mom opened one eye and she was kind of like, all right, let's just get it over with. And so she agreed to the second round. Thankfully, again, I, I keep saying this because I do, I, this is so important. Um, I befriended a lot of nurses over the eight months 
They are the most critical part of your care. They will make or break your care. And I had a nurse call me Saturday morning, stuck her head out because she wasn't following orders. And she said, Missy, this isn't the Connie I know. You need to get over here. Um, You know, I'm not going to hang this bag until you come. So I raced over. My sister raced over. One of the backup oncologists was there because he was gone for the weekend. Came in again, looked at her, said she was fine, the whole thing. And this, you know, you ask what, what you think was one of your biggest mistakes. This one of my biggest mistakes was allowing myself to say yes and believe this man because we agreed to another round. We thought, okay, maybe we're overreacting. Well, that, that was it. I, I went the next morning. I found my mother flat. Uh, she had throw up coming out of her mouth. Um, she could have aspirated. She was not elevated in the, in the, in the bed, um, hallucinating, um, shallow breathing. She was poisoned. So, um, now I can't leave. Now I don't, now I I made a mistake by allowing the dosages already. Um, now I need to sleep there because I don't trust you. And so I slept there and, um, it was, it was hell. Like every time she moved, she threw up Zofran, um, narcotics, benzodiazepines, nothing helped, nothing helped. She was poisoned. And, um, her body wanted it out. Yeah, it it was terrible. And, and, um, so Monday about five o'clock, Dr. X came back in the one that I called on Friday and he looked at me and he said, you're right. She was toxic. And I'm like, I said to him, and at the time I worked 20 years in the reinsurance industry. I have a master's in psychology, but I wound up in reinsurance. That's a whole nother story. And I I looked at him and I said, I'm in reinsurance. You're the professional. This is your flipping job. And, and, you know, after that, like any skip in my mom's step that she had any, any hope, any uh, thoughts that she was going to beat this mentally they were gone it it was it was gone like we're not very religious people but that's how bad it was you know priests seemed to walk around oncology floors and he came into my mom's room three times during the two weeks after that round of chemotherapy and i called my husband from the city three times to come home because i thought she was dying everybody thought she was relatives were coming to visit it was terrible and when i when I wrote the book, I, I got all of her medical records and I put them in a spreadsheet Good. every single, like Good. if she had paracentesis, which, you know, she, I mean, you have to have almost every other day that takes the ascites out. I, I put it down. How many liters I put it down. Like I put every single thing into a spreadsheet. And one thing that it wrote after she was poisoned in September, it said patient presented with ifosamide toxicity. And I'm like, I Googled it you know, and, and I'm not even a doctor. I just knew, you know, I just, I could tell, you know, by looking at her and, um, you know, with that, it was kind of like, and this is what was really hard is that after that, you know, she started to fill up with ascites again. And we're like, what in God's name is going on? You just got to bolts. You just got this, you only had microscopic and she got a CAT scan with contrast because they thought it could be a bowel obstruction, which is common. And, um, 
31 days after being debulked, she had more cancer than she started with back. Oh, back. And what I found out after the, afterwards, because she got the first stage of BRCA testing, she didn't go through the whole process, but I went to a genetic person because I didn't, because we found out in the pathology, the cancer was so rare. It was a sarcoma. It would have never, um, and we, we knew, we found out the hard way, it would have never responded to platinum-based chemotherapy, which is the norm for ovarian. Um, yeah. It was very, very um, aggressive, very, very rare. And could she have beaten it? I don't know. Had they, had they found it earlier? Had they gotten it out earlier? Had they treated it with the right chemotherapy? Maybe, but I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I can't, I can't make that call, but, um, you know, the only option at this point was, you know, go on a maintenance kind of, and it was Doxel. Um, they wanted to put her on. She did a couple rounds of that. And I mean, every other day, my dad was taking her to get paracentesis, which is the, the needle that they aspirate. She had like, you know, like seven liters one day, five liters two days later. I mean, it was so much every day. And, you know, after Thanksgiving, she was just like, uh, you know, we always said, Ma, when you're ready, you know, you just, you call the shots. And, and, and that's what I was going to ask. What, what did she say? Yeah. And, and honestly, I think if I'm honest with myself, I think that my mom, um, did most of what she did for us the whole time because I think she knew because we found, which is really strange is that we started May 1st was when we went to the emergency room the first time, May 15th, I found a journal in her bedroom where she wrote out what she wanted for a funeral. I think my mom knew she, she, I think a couple of things. I think one, she went through it all for us. I think when she said that she watched Dr. Oz in the ER and knew it was bad, even though we didn't want to think that way, that she was exactly right. I think when we found um, a bunch of Tums and stuff to treat urinary tract infections on her dresser, she had had symptoms for a long time and just not said anything. And was she was so strong, yeah. she was working through them. Like I looked up my mom's generation, they're called the silent generation. They're in between the war babies and the boomers. And they're, they're known to not be doctor people. They're known to not want to ever, um, put anybody out. And, um, that was her thing. Like she never wanted to be a burden. Even the week when we finally, she finally interviewed with hospice. And, and I spoke on another podcast about this the other day. It was weird because the week prior to hospice, like she was depressed, she was sick she was sleeping probably out of 24 hours, probably 15 hours a day. You know, we would get her outside to try and get some serotonin going and bring her foods. But, you know, realistically, the cancer was up to her diaphragm. She couldn't eat. We tried, you know. Um, But once hospice came and they did the interview in the house, it was like she perked up. She was cognitively intact she was alert. Her voice was strong. She wasn't like that benzodiazepine tired. She was answered all their questions about her meds. She was like, she knew exactly. And, and, and that, that I made me feel like, you know, a little better about the situation. Cause of course you don't want to be there, but 
you have to allow the patient to make that choice. And, um, you do. And, and I'm glad you said, you that. know, it was, you know, with hospice, you know, every day they, they tell you it's going to, today's going to be the day. Today's going to be the day. And, um, things have changed since COVID, which that's another story. But, um, you know, one other thing that I tell folks is that if they are going to use hospice, they're all very good. But if you can find someone that is, has dealt with cancer before, that's helpful. Um, if you have someone with congestive heart failure, find someone that has done that before, because what I found was, you know, with my mom, you know, they check to see if you have edema in the legs, they check to see the respiration rates, you know, that kind of thing. But right. I, I think that the more experience the person has with the disease, the easier it is on the family. Because, you know, I sat and watched her, I sat in a chair and my parents, I grew up in a 900 square foot house, so there was no hiding. And my mom was on, yeah, <laughs> my, my mom was on the my mom was on the couch and and I sat in a chair for a solid week at, by about so Saturday we started by about Wednesday she didn't get up again and you know we had the um, the narcotics that you, you give in the mouth and stuff and um, right. the the weird thing is when you're going through hospice or not you but as a caretaker is you you know what the end result is you know what you're waiting for. But at the same time, you're so scared, you don't want it to happen either. So I sat and I watched to make sure her chest was rising up and down for a week. And and then she was on, um, why can't I think of it? Some, the main narcotic that they use. Um, Methadone, uh, Yeah, and it was 0.5 milliliters. And I, in error, gave one milliliter, like a full one ML. And I asked my sister, I'm like, Alicia, I'm like, what's the dose of shit again? And she's like five. And I'm like, oh, I just gave her one. And it's really weird. And again, I, I write in the book, like it, one for one side of me, I thought, oh my God, what did I do? But on the other side of me, I thought, did I just help her? Because we all know over time, the narcotics, the morphine slows down the central nervous system, which eventually helps people pass, but it, you know, she, she, she was okay with the one milliliter. And, but let me ask you this, yeah. because when, in addition to my sister, I've had five other family members die mm. from five different kinds of cancer mm. and, and every death was different. Yeah. And with my step grandfather, he went into hospice well ahead of time. You know, he, he was very intuitive and, and he realized mm. that, things were not working yeah. and he was 82 and he was ready. And, and I really applaud him for that because he was able to say goodbye to his grandkids, his great grandkids, but hospice did not prepare my step grandmother for what hospice was like. They didn't prepare her for when he stops breathing. You do not call an ambulance. Right. You do, you know, you're not. Yeah. There was, it was like that part was just not explained yeah. to her at all. And, and thankfully he, he did die at mm. home very peacefully, not in pain, but had my stepmother, their only living child at that point, not been there, m my grandmother would have called an ambulance yeah. Yeah. and they would have tried to revive yeah. him. Oh my God. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so I'm curious, did, did hospice really prepare you? 
you, your sister, and your father not, for that? Not really. And and one thing did happen in the kitchen that I I gave hospice feedback afterwards. I didn't have any energy to give it to the lady at the time because the other the sure. other thing that was hard with hospice was there was four different providers that came, and and that's hard. Wow. Yeah, so you you. Oh wow, that's unusual. yeah. That I didn't. In my experience, I didn't care for that because. It, it's almost it's almost the same thing of 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 you know when the 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 doc the other oncologist came and looked at my mother he'd never seen her before he didn't know her case right. he probably never read her file he didn't know what she looked healthy so all these different providers you know if you have a week's a week's worth of work two weeks you don't know how long it's going to take by alternating people it just makes it harder that's my opinion and the the yeah. one thing I heard was one of the ladies she was ordering the, um, the narcotic over the phone. And, um, she's like, yeah, we need, she said to her boss on the phone, she goes, yeah, we need to get this here immediately. This one's going down quick. This one's going down quick. <gasps> yeah. And I'm standing five feet from her oh and I'm like, <laughs> what a cruel and sensitive. Thing so, to say. yeah. So after my mom passed, I made sure I gave that feedback to the hospice person, I said, listen, I know these people deal with this every day. I know they're like people that are EMTs. They see death every day. But to say that in front of a family member, she's lucky that I didn't have the energy or the yeah. because I, I don't know what I would have done. Honestly, it was, it was horrible because you're already defeated, you know, and to hear this one is going down quick. It was like, you gotta be kidding me. Um, so did I'm they prepare so us? We knew not to call the ambulance. We called the coroner. Um, as luck would have it, the next day after my mom passed, the oxygen came, the hospital bed came, like all the stuff came. And my father, we just got rid of it really quickly. Um, right. You know, again, throughout the my mom's journey and in the book, there were probably, my God, 25 major mess ups. Um, I gave you a couple and I probably had a medical malpractice case. In fact, I had a medical malpractice underwriter look at it because I worked in reinsurance and he said, absolutely. But my dad and my sister did not want to do it, which I understand. It wasn't going to bring my mom back. They didn't want to go through it. I totally get it. But mm. I needed to make sure that somebody knew what happened. And I was going to get that done in two ways. One, my dad had a $5,000 net bill, which considering the amount of care my mom got, probably half a million dollars, that to me, that was nothing. But to him, that was a lot. Um, so I wrote a letter to the CEO of the hospital and I said, listen, I'm not going to litigate, but I'm going to list you five of 25 mistakes that happened under your Good care. You. And I'm asking you to zero balance my, my dad's balance, you know, and three weeks later, I got a letter from him and they zero balanced it. And I, I said to my colleagues at work, I said, he had to have 10 lawyers sit around him at a table to agree to that because by zero balancing my mom's account, he admitted liability. And again, would she have, would she have died anyway? I can't answer that question, but would she have suffered? No had they not made mistakes. Yeah. And some of them were little, like not, maybe not little to me, but some of them were like, I would come in after work and she'd be very nauseous, but the nurse just forgot to turn the Zofran on. 
human error. It happens, right? But reading a CAT scan wrong and giving the patient's family wrong information and then having them have more, oh no, that's you know, getting a cancer diagnosis from a poor nurse without any anything to go on, yeah. um, you know. Uh, oh, oh my God, this is even worse. So in July, she got um, two pulmonary embolisms and two DVTs because with cancer, of course, you know, you get clots. So she was in cardiology for like four days. We were in a teaching hospital. I was up there with her late at night and um, she just got, you know, her up to the floor and everything. And um, a student came in and asked my mother her uh, <laughs> DNR and healthcare proxy information. She was tired. It was 930 at night. She's like, well, if there's no hope, I don't want anything. And with that, he took his pen and left. And I said, Ma, oh, no. I said, you just told him if you have a cardiac arrest tonight, right. not to do anything. She goes, no, I didn't. I said, yes, she did. Yeah. And, yes, she did. So yeah. I got him back. I sat him down. I said, what did you just hear? He goes, she wants nothing. Nothing. I said, no. She doesn't want a stomach tube and she doesn't want to be on a vent. That's it. And so he had to redo everything. Then I, I you know, I, you know, they have all the IVs and stuff. I, I looked at my mom's wrist. I, I don't know why I just did. And her name was Constance E. Burns. The bracelet had another lady's name on it. <gasps> yes. What? Yes. I had my Blackberry at the time. I didn't even think to take a picture, but I, got the head nurse of course they cut that off really quickly yeah i bet they did oh my and, god and and, and, I, and this is what i put in the letter to the ceo i said that is her record that's her diagnosis that's her meds i, I Allergies? yeah i said ma i said you could have gone down for an angiogram at 2 a.m been jacked up on ativan and not even known it because yeah. you were i'm not going to say her name but you were you were a cardiac patient i mean yeah. You know, and, and uh, I, I mean, those are just some, and, and, and I, I don't want to beat up doctors. I, I've come a long way in the 10 years since my mom passed and I've, I've read uh, books about oncology and I know how hard their job is. I mean, God to have the job to tell people they have um, a disease that they might not survive from is not easy, but there are things um, that as a caregiver, as a family member, you just have to do. And if you can't do it, you got to get somebody to do it for you. Um, and, and one of them is, you know, you have to find your voice. You have to have, you know, a heavy, like I was in my mom's, um, in my mom's case, um, you know, you have to write things down. You have to push back. You have to ask questions. You have to educate yourself. Like, like you say, um, I want to turn the focus back mm -hmm. to you. Did you find any support? as a caregiver? And if so, how did you find I it? I did. I did at work. I did with my husband, but I was on overdrive. I was on, I was working full time. I had a toddler. My mom was dying. And if I, I, I mean, I, I was, a, I'll just say it. I was a miserable bitch. I mean, I, I remember one night I came home and Anthony, my husband and I were eating. It was like 10 o'clock. I just came home from the hospital. My son was sleeping and he asked me a question and I was gave him a snarky response. And he's like, does it bother you when I speak to you? And I'm like, yes. Like I just was in the zone. Like it, I had no, I had no reserve. 
you know, and, um, you know, so it doesn't sound like that you had support. It, then. No. And even if I did, I probably wouldn't have taken it. I mean, I have a, I have a master's in psychology. I worked in psychiatric ERs. I did group therapy. I, I worked in step down houses. Like I, I, I was too smart to get help. And then after she passed, it was another worse scenario because I handled grief terribly. And it took me a year and a half to realize that I needed help and actually get it. Um, and I, I'm not proud of that, but I, I'll admit it. I, I, you know, I was angry a long time. That's okay. Yeah. And you know, yeah. that. that's okay. I want to ask you about your mom. So if you could hold on to one memory forever about your mom, you and your mom, what would it be and why? I would say when I told her I was pregnant with my son, because I had a lot of ectopics throughout my life and I, my son's a miracle. I had him at 39 and, uh, I was told I would never have kids. Um, and I, she was working in the restaurant and I brought his ultrasound in and she was like, Oh my God. And you know, that was her, her little <laughs> blue eyed boy, you know, but unfortunately she, she only got to spend 15 months with him, but you know, that was, that was that, but yeah, I would, I would say that. Melissa, if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why? That's a big question today. Um, I want medical school students to learn better advocacy and patient awareness. I want them to learn that it's not just the gallbladder and room 101. I want them <laughs> to be a patient for a day. And that doesn't mean getting stuck with needles, but I want them to, I want them to wait for breakfast. I want them to, I want them to understand what it's like to be a patient. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's where it needs to start. I agree with you. And, it has and, to start and take, with that generation. Right. And listen to yeah. the family more and, and not that the family is trying to take their job, but you know, like I can say if my mom, I spent the weekend with her and she only drank half a boost. I know that information right. and that's important. Um, yeah. You know, more of a 360 with, with all of the, the people involved and, and the family or the, or the advocate that that's, that's so, so important. And it's, it's not, it's, we, we don't have it. Yeah. Are you ready for the Thriver mm -hmm. Rapid Fire? Beach, desert, or mountain? Beach. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Rolling Stones. What is one word that best describes you? Execution. Before you die, what's the last song you want to hear? Fade to Black, Metallica. What about the last meal you want to eat? Spaghetti. The last person or people you want to see? My family, my son, my husband. And the last words you will speak? Thank you. And aside from Cancer You, what's one resource that you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And please tell people how they can get in touch with you. Uh, I would say uh, to talk to, you know, like you said, other caregivers, um, other people that have been through it since I wrote not in vain, a promise kept, I have befriended people globally that have 
given me the compliment of saying, you put into words exactly how I felt. And um, I appreciate that. Um, you know, I do a lot with the Ovarian Cancer Coalition. Um, you know, my website is uh, com. I'm on Instagram, Melissa Melanfi, the books on Amazon, it's where all books are sold. And, um, you know, one thing I tried to do with the book is tell my mom's story, but at the end of each chapter, I add what I learned and what I would do differently. So it's, it's also a, um, you know, a, a go-to of, of things that you need to do when you're advocating for a loved one, um, that you might not think about. Oh, I love it. Yeah. All right. Well, so we will put links to those in the show notes and in the workshop notes. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your and your mother's story today. I appreciate it. And I appreciate everything you do. I really like it. And I signed up for Cancer U to check it out. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, I love the idea. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.